Welcome to the 3D Parent Podcast. My name is Bevan Walters, your host and founder of The 3D Parent. I'm a certified parent coach and have spent the last decade living my calling in life, helping parents navigate the tough stuff like tantrums, sibling conflict, screen time overload, and managing the transition into the teenage years. My purpose is to provide you with the tools you need as a parent to lead with dignity, direction, and deep connection in your family relationships. My goal in creating the 3D Parent Podcast is to inform, empower, and increase confidence in parents so they can trust their instincts and make the best decisions possible for their families. For these reasons, I've rated this podcast FPEO for parents' ears only. Parenting is challenging, but you don't have to do it alone. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the 3D Parent Podcast. Today, I'm really excited about the episode that I'm going to be presenting because I'm not doing it alone. I am joined with a guest. The topic today is encouraging healthy eating in kids, and I have guest Dr. Orlina Carrick with me. And I'm going to start off by telling you a little bit about Dr. Arlena's background and then jump into the conversation because this is a big one for many parents out there I know. So a bit about Dr. Arlena. She trained as a pediatric doctor in the UK, but now resides in Spain with her four children. She teaches children and their parents how to enjoy healthy eating and living without having to think about it. She is the author of the book, Feeding Toddlers, and also hosts the podcast, Fit and Fabulous at 40 and Beyond. Welcome to the 3D Parent Podcast, Arlena. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I am, like I said, I'm really excited about this topic and also having someone partner with me while tackling this topic as a parent coach and also with my personal experience as a parent. I feel like there's three big topics that come up again and again as struggles for families, particularly with families with little ones, and that is anything having to do with potty training or toilet training, sleep and eating. Those are just the biggies where there tend to be so many power struggles. And for myself personally, these are three areas that I've had struggles with with various ones of my children. And I'm not a gastroenterologist. I'm not a sleep consultant. and I don't have any formal background in nutrition. So because of that, I really, really wanted to tackle these particular topics with the help of someone who does have real expert knowledge in the field. And that's what led me to connect with Orlina and find out if she'd be willing to come on the podcast. So I'd love to hear first a little bit from you, Orlina, about what led you to the work you're currently doing around nutrition and families. Well, it is interesting that you ask me that question as you phrase it in like, oh, these are the problems that I have. Well, guess what? Those are the problems that I had. So as you said, I trained as a pediatric doctor in the UK, but just, goodness, it's nearly 10 years ago, we moved to Spain. And I say I moved with my eyes wide shut. So I kind of thought, oh, it's we're all in the European Union. I'll be able to work in Spain and continue my career as a pediatric doctor doing clinical work. But it's a very long story. And it didn't quite work out like that. In the end, I did do a little bit of work, but not to the extent, not in the way that I wanted to do. And at that time as well, I found myself a mother of four young children. I had four children under four and a half. So my youngest were twins. And guess what? My children 
didn't eat as healthily as I wanted. So I remember when I was in clinical work and so many people used to come to me with tummy pains or my child's got tummy pain. And quite often I would diagnose constipation because they weren't eating enough vegetables. And I would just, you know, glibly say, oh, well, you just need to get your kids to eat more vegetables. It's so easy. <laughs> and then, of course, I had kids of my own. And guess what? They didn't eat vegetables, even though I put them on the table. As you say, I knew the nutrition. I knew that vegetables were healthy and that they form a huge part of a healthy diet. It's just my children didn't eat them. And I even remember this one time with my second son. He must have been around three at the time, but he was crying on the toilet because he was in so much pain. Constipation can be really, really painful. And it was just one of those eye-opening moments, you know, me just going, I can't believe my son is on the toilet crying in pain because he's got constipation because he's not eating his vegetables. And I guess it was just one of those light bulb moments. Oh my goodness, I'm not the only person who is struggling with this. So that was when I started working. I have picky eaters as well. I started working on picky eating and how to help our children eat healthily. And I guess it's just evolved from there really. And so now I look at the whole family. One of the things I found was doing the work on children. A lot of parents sort of came to me saying, I want my children to eat healthily. But the reality was they weren't eating healthily. And you're in a very difficult situation if you're not eating healthily. I would say one of the best things to do is demonstrate healthy eating and living. So I now work with the entire family, particularly with the focus on the mother. So she may want to lose weight or she may just want to eat more healthily and get more energy, get a bit of time for herself. But it's about being able to do all of those things and at the same time teach all of those things to our children. And along the way, it be fun and easy and enjoyable. I love that. And first of all, connecting on having four children, it's not often that you talk to other people who have four kids and, you know, and also connecting on the idea that here, I was trained originally as a teacher thinking, oh my gosh, how difficult can it be to raise a few of my children, my own, it's so humbling. And you end up with all these problems you never think you'll have. And that might lead you towards the path of pursuing your passion for you, nutrition, for me, parent coaching, they're closely related, but also kind of that passion came out of her own struggles, which I think so often happens when you're falling in the same place. But I also really love how you share about, it's not just about getting your kids to eat healthily, it's about the whole family unit. So you've touched on it a bit more, but I'd love to dive in a little deeper on kind of the broad topic of how can parents teach their kids to eat healthily? That is a really good question. And, you know, I think the biggest step, as I mentioned, is to demonstrate healthy eating. And the reality is, if we look from you know, an epidemiological point of view, so that's looking at populations and people and what's likely to happen to children. If we look at people whose family, they are eating healthily, those children are going to grow up with healthy eating habits because they're just demonstrated and it's normal for them. So an example for me is my own life. I grew up eating vegetables. My mother would always have vegetables at the table it was either a salad in the summer or, you know, broccoli or something like that in the winter. And I can't conceive of a meal without vegetables. So when I went to university, I just ate vegetables because that was what I thought was normal. And it wasn't until later on that I realized not everybody thinks like that. Whatever you have got happened as a child, that's what you think is normal. So you tend to eat the same way as an adult as you do when you're children. So I think one of the things is about taking a step back and looking at 
everything that we eat. Because when we think about our children, quite often what happens is we focus very much on dinner. And so we will say, oh, my children, they don't like vegetables. You know, they'll only eat peas and carrots or something like that. You know, they won't eat. And then there's a long list of foods that children won't eat. Now, the reality is that children will eat vegetables. Even picky eaters will eat vegetables. But there's another bigger question, and it's what are they being offered all day, every day? Because all children, and indeed most adults, are go you know, there's some foods that they like. So we like sugar. We're designed to seek sugar, and children are designed to seek sugar too. So if you offer them cake and cabbage, <laughs> guess which one they're going to pick. And equally, most adults would be like that. I definitely would pick the cake. (laughs) (laughs) I think the reality is that people who would actually pick the vegetables, it's because they've done a lot of work on training themselves. And so, you know, I've probably got to the stage where actually I do enjoy salad and vegetables more than cake. I eat some cake. It's not that I don't eat any cake. But that's because I've done a lot of work on thinking about what is healthy and what isn't healthy. And most people aren't in that situation. So when we say, oh my goodness, my children won't eat vegetables, actually, if you look at the bigger picture, what you're actually saying is, well, if I look at what I offer my children, quite a lot of it is what I call quick release glucose. So, you know, things like bread and pasta, those kind of comfort foods that we really enjoy eating. Things like breakfast cereal. Breakfast cereal are one of my pet hates. They are so full of sugar, most of them. And even if they're not full of sugar, what they're made of is like crunched up corn, which basically breaks down to sugar as soon as we have eaten it. So it gives us a really quick glucose release. And so when we look at everything that we're eating and we say, okay, so my children are basically getting lots of calories from this quick release glucose. They're not choosing to eat the vegetables. Well, why aren't they choosing to eat the vegetables? Because what we're offering them is out of balance and we need to get that balance back. And it's really about looking at all the food that we offer our children. Because I don't know about you, but my kids, particularly when they were younger, they know immediately, if they know at three o'clock it's biscuit time and or you call them cookies, we call them biscuits in the UK. But if they know that there's going to be free reign of biscuits, they will fill up. So I remember when my oldest child was a baby and we used to do this thing, very British, we would meet for afternoon tea, a group of you know, young mums with young babies. And in a very British way, we would offer cups of tea and politely put biscuits on the table. Now, obviously, as adults, we might take one or two biscuits because we've learned those internal limits, which our children don't have. My son was obviously one of the worst culprits, but if I didn't stop him, he would just go and eat basically all the biscuits on the table. And I quickly realized that he would do this and that when he got home, it would be dinner time. Well, clearly he didn't want any dinner because he's just had three days worth of calories in those biscuits. And that's one of the problems is that we don't realize that our children, they know that they're happy to save themselves up for those biscuits. They will skip lunch that they don't like if they know that at three o'clock they're going to get cookies and that they can fill up on those cookies. And so one of the really big steps we need to take is thinking about all the foods that we're offering our children. It's not just about dinner time. It's about what they eat throughout the day and throughout the week. That's so true. It is really common that children, particularly young children, they have met all their calorie needs for the day by the time dinner comes around. Or like you said, they filled up on snacks and other foods, many of which may not have as much nutrient value. And then they don't want to eat dinner. And we all wonder why dinner is such a disaster every night. (laughs) It might have been all those hours prior to dinner that kind of added up to that situation. Yes, totally. So what you want to be doing is making sure that throughout the day, they are having lots of opportunities to eat fruit and vegetables. So that can look like, 
whatever your breakfast is, you offer it with fruit. So for us for breakfast, we have, you call it oatmeal. I have to do a little bit of translation here. We call it porridge, just made of oats. And we offer fruit. So my children can choose whatever fruit they have and then nuts and seeds. So it's a little bit of oats and some fruit. And then at snack time, they'll take fruit. At lunchtime, there's lots of fruit and vegetables available. So by the time they get to dinner time, I know that they've eaten healthily through the day and I'm not worried about dinner time. Now, if they choose not to eat at dinner time, then that's fine. They're not hungry or there's something they don't like. That's fine. I'm not worried about it. I don't think, oh my goodness, you have to eat that broccoli because otherwise you haven't eaten anything green all day. So it's about retraining and thinking as a family about all the foods that are on offer. And I would say, if you could just take one thing away from today, it's eat more vegetables. I always say the best thing you can give your children is your own happiness. And the second best thing you can give them is vegetables. And I really think that's true. I think, you know, vegetables, you can't go wrong with offering children vegetables. You might say, my children don't like vegetables. Well, they just need to be presented again and again and again. And obviously, some children have dislikes. And for example, my children don't like, we call them aubergines, we call them eggplants and courgettes. They will eat them mixed up in certain things, but if they detect them, they pick them out, which I allow them to do and say, that's fine. You can pick things out. You have to learn to politely pick things out, but you can pick things out. And yeah, you just have to keep going and keep going and allow them to have some dislikes. You don't want to force them to eat anything and just keep going, keep presenting those fruit and vegetables and they will just get the habit of eating them. And they will actually decide that they're quite delicious. I think another problem is that when you're having a diet which is high in processed foods where they put in sugar and salt, it's then very difficult for vegetables to compete because they don't have that added sugar and salt. But there are other things you can do, like put some nice tasty olive oil or a bit of butter on them to just sort of lift the vegetables out and make them more appealing. So as I say, vegetables. That makes sense. I have a question. Thinking about my third-born daughter who did not like salads, until I tossed in a handful of dried, you know, cranberries or dried raisins and maybe some nuts, sometimes nuts that have been like honey roasted so they're a little bit sweet. Or if I put a dressing, a salad dressing on top that is also sweet, like a raspberry vinaigrette or something of that nature. So I realized that, yes, I'm successful in getting my daughter to now like salads, but I'm tossing in a handful of sugar <laughs> alongside the vegetables. What are your thoughts on something like that to try and get a child to try a food that they may, you know, initially not like, adding in a little bit of sugar along with the salads or in your, you've already described, you know, putting on olive oil or butter on vegetables. What about sweetened dressings or fruit in salads? Yeah, I think you hit upon two questions. So I'm going to break this down into two separate parts. Firstly, talk about sugar. And then secondly, we'll talk about food pairing, which is a really interesting way of helping children to like new foods. So I think the question about sugar, it, again, it's not about one small amount of sugar. It's again about having a look at their entire diet and having a think about all the sugar that they get. So if you're saying, you know, well, my children has have loads and loads of sugar throughout the day, well, then in all honesty, a tiny bit more sugar is probably not going to make very much difference. If you're saying, okay, my children don't have any sugar throughout the day, then a little bit of sugar is okay. And I think really, there's this thing called food pairing. And what happens is you present a food with something that they like. So it could be sugar, but it could be something like tomato ketchup, which normally has quite a lot of sugar in it. It could be something like cream cheese, or we like cheddar cheese here. 
And when you present that food with the light food, they're more likely to enjoy it. And I think really, a lot of children have this thing that they call the accepted list. And it's almost like a game that they play inside the head. Obviously, they don't see it as a game. But they have inside their head this, okay, this is on the accepted list. This thing that I don't know is dangerous and scary. And what they often say, the language they use is, I don't like it. And parents find this really frustrating because they then say, but you've never tried it. So how do you know if you like it or not? And it's a bit of, again, this translation error. They don't mean I don't like it. They mean I'm scared of it. I've never tried it. And I don't want to try it right now, as opposed to I don't actually like it in the same way that parents mean I like something or I don't like something. So I think coming back to your question about the sugar... I think, yes, it's a good, it can be a good tool. You want to be a bit careful that you're not overusing it, but I have definitely found it myself. So for example, I made baked peaches once when we first moved to Spain and I followed a recipe and I put sugar on them. They were a dessert. So you kind of expect a bit of sugar in dessert. My children absolutely love them. I think my oldest child must've been four. And he said to me, mummy, you are fabulous. And he said it like that. And I said, oh, thank you. Do you mean that the food is fabulous or fabulous? He said, no, mummy. <laughs> You are, you are fabulous. And I, you know, it just warms my heart thinking about it. But I quickly realized that I didn't need to put sugar on. Now, they had never tried baked peaches before. We don't have many peaches in the UK, but they loved that dessert. And then after that, I just made them without adding sugar. And now they're an accepted family dessert that everybody loves. Obviously, peaches have naturally occurring sugar in, but I don't have to add any extra sugar. So I think if you're going to move away from the sugar, then that's great you know, use it, but be careful of it. And I think as well, again, it comes back to that, well, how much sugar is my child getting? And if I'm getting them to eat some vegetables with a little bit of sugar on, then the net result is I've won the vegetables, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I also, you know, once she started accepting salads, you know, I do keep the nuts and the dried fruit in there, but I'll occasionally mix up and not put in the sweetened dressing. So it's almost like weaning them off with the sugar, <laughs> like you did with the peaches. Yeah. And away from that, kind of needing that kind of sweet to enjoy something that hopefully they'll come to enjoy the taste of without the added sugar on top as well. Yeah. And as I say, I think if you've got a child who is eating lots of healthy fruit and vegetables, a little bit of sugar in their diet isn't a disaster. It's when you're eating lots and lots of processed foods, you know, you don't want to be adding in more and more. You want to basically be aware of those processed foods and move them to more natural foods with naturally occurring sugars, which can be quite sweet. But as I say, they can really pale in comparison to those strong sugars. I remember one Easter here. Easter's normally quite sunny. And our strawberry season will have started by Easter. And I remember buying these delicious, delicious strawberries. And they tasted just, you know, when you bite into something and there's just your mouth bursts with this wonderful flavor, delicious strawberries. And then because it was Easter, we had some chocolate and I had a little bit of chocolate, obviously super, super sweet. And then I went back to the strawberries, the strawberries being exactly the same strawberries, but I've got this sugary taste in my mouth. And now those strawberries taste really acidic and horrible. And I think, oh, what has happened to these strawberries? They're really not very pleasant strawberries. The reality was the strawberries were exactly the same, but what had happened is I had overpowered my taste buds and sort of drowned them in sugar so that they couldn't pick out those beautiful flavors of the strawberries. That's so true. And it's, you just start looking at labels of processed food, even things that are, you know, we don't think of as being overly processed, just like bread and how frequently sugar is so high up on the list of ingredients. And you think, gosh, sugar is added to so many foods that we're not even aware of. And then you just get used to that taste. So it's missing 
you kind of naturally reject it. And, you know, as adults, we can power through, but kids, of course, they can be really opinionated when it comes to foods that don't taste the way that they're used to or that they prefer, which kind of leads me to the next topic that you've already touched on a bit, but I want to go a little deeper. And that has to do with how parents can best help their picky eaters. Now, of my four kids, I would say I have two very picky eaters and they're kind of my real highly sensitive children who just, you know, the textures can bother them, smells can bother them, things being too hot, being too cold, being too salty, being too spicy. Everything seems extreme. And those are my two pickiest eaters. And then I have one kind of like a little bit opinionated eater, but willing to try things. And then I have one kid that's always just had a great appetite. He has tried all things, vegetables, fruits, you name it, just easy peasy. So in four kids, I've raised all pretty much the same way. I have a wide range of very, very opinionated and picky to super adventurous eaters. So how do parents help those picky eaters? How do parents help those kids become more adventurous, try those foods that they automatically want to reject? And get out of, like you said, the chosen food list. I've worked with some parents who have children who have one food they're willing to eat, cereal. The one you already mentioned as being kind of your <laughs> least favorite food item for kids. That's the only food their child will eat. And they're like, how do I get out of this? How do I get out of my kid eating just one food or only highly processed foods? Well, I think the first thing is to acknowledge that picky eating is a spectrum. So, you know, you've got children who aren't that picky, but, you know, they have some foods that they dislike, like obviously mushrooms, poor mushrooms. I don't know why no children like mushrooms, but mushrooms, eggplants, they seem to be the main culprit. And then right at the other end, you've got a spectrum of children and some children really do have extreme picky eating such that it really does impact their lives and their eating. And actually, they say under 10 different foods. So if you've got somebody who's only eating one food, they really need to be seeking help. Now, when I say one food, it's one exact food. So if you look at different types of pasta, every different shape of pasta counts as a different food. It's not pasta by itself. It's fusilli and spaghetti. So I think, first of all, acknowledge that there is a spectrum and there's, you know, it's a complicated situation. There are lots of different reasons behind what's going on or potential reasons, if that makes sense. And I think it's an important to acknowledge it's not the parent's fault. It is just one of those things. And we have to make the best of the situation that it is. And we have to accept our children for who they are. Now, on a positive note, we have the whole of their childhood to teach them healthy eating. And I do think that it is something we learn. I don't think healthy eating comes naturally to people. And our aim is really that when our children have left home, they pick healthy foods by themselves so they're going to carry on being healthy adults. You know, we don't want them eating healthily for however many years and then leave home and go, that's it. I'm only ever eating McDonald's. But, you know, as I say, they do develop those habits and those habits around the family home are the habits that they are likely to take on into adulthood. So number one, demonstrating healthy food. Number two, thinking about what you offer. So there's a lady called Ellen Satter, and she's done a lot of work on how to feed picky children. And what she talks about is the division of responsibility. And she says, adults have the responsibility to pick the foods that are on offer and, you know, what feeding time. So that looks like a routine. So breakfast, snack, lunch, perhaps a snack and dinner. And you decide what the menu is. And your children decide, it's up to them to decide what and how much they want to eat. And I would explain that it is slightly more complicated than that, in that we have a responsibility to pick those healthy foods. So it's all about the vegetables. We pick the vegetables 
And I would say that we also pick portion sizes. Let me explain a little bit more. So my children will are what, what I call carbohydrate seeking missiles. And you talked about bread and sugar. And actually, when you look at something like bread, the minute you have digested it, it gets broken down to sugar, to glucose. It is essentially sugar. And in our body, it basically has the same physiological response as sugar. So it doesn't really matter whether you're eating sugar, which obviously tastes sweeter, or whether you're eating a more complex carbohydrate. And by those, I mean the white refined carbohydrates. They get broken down more quickly. Now, just to be confusing, vegetables are also carbohydrates. And here I am saying, oh, you have to eat vegetables. But the difference is that they are wrapped up in lots of goodies and fiber. Those glucoses get released more slowly and they have other benefits as well. So they're really great for our biome, which is all those bugs and different things that make up the sort of main bulk of our gastrointestinal tract. So you want to think about what you're presenting and really think about healthy foods. And my children will always pick bread or pasta. That's what they want to eat above fruit and vegetables. So I often do at lunchtime, my children come home for lunch. That's what happens in Spain. What I call a picnic style lunch. So, you know, think about the Greek salad. If I put all the ingredients of a Greek salad into one bowl, my children would be very upset because the olives would have touched the tomatoes or the lettuce. There would have been something that touched something else and they don't like that. Now, I love a mixed salad, but that's fine. If I present it in little bowls and I put it all in my plate and I have got a mixed salad. Now, my children who like cucumber can have cucumber. My children who like tomato can have tomato. So you can see that they can choose what they want to eat, particularly if you've got reasonably picky eaters. And I would say you always want to make sure there is something acceptable, not necessarily their favorite food, but something that's acceptable to them because the idea isn't that you starve your children, it's that you give them an opportunity to eat. Hey there, parents. Are you tired of feeling like your kids are in charge at home, negotiating, demanding, and generally calling all the shots? Well, then I have a free resource for you called 10 Steps to Get Back in Charge of Your Kids. Just click the link below to download your own copy. Let's get you back in the driver's seat. Now, going back to the portion size, what I find is if I were to put out this lovely picnic style and just allow my children, you know, if there were mountains of food, my children would eat loads and loads of bread and loads of protein. We serve cheese. We're not vegetarian, but we don't eat a lot of meat. So they would eat bread and cheese and leave it at that. And even though they eat fruit and vegetables, they probably wouldn't pick up many fruit and vegetables. So if I say to them, okay, you can have a small portion of bread and here is free reign of all the fruit and vegetables, then they will eat those fruit and vegetables because, again, it comes down to, you know, filling up on calories and the calorie requirement that they need. I haven't allowed them to use all their calories in the bread and the protein. So it's almost... You know, eat your fruit and vegetables first and have a little bit of refined carbohydrates. If you, you don't have to, you can just have fruit and vegetables and have a little bit of protein. And, you know, then you've presented a balanced meal and your children have eaten a balanced meal. So, yeah. So it's like, you know, they can still have those foods, but it's just not unlimited quantity. The thing they can't have unlimited quantity for is things like the fruits and vegetables. Yeah, exactly. And so that they're able to, you know, have foods that might be their go-tos. They're, like you said, the breads, the pastas, the rice, things of that nature. 
And then, but they only get a small portion of that and they can have as much as they want of all the other more maybe nutrient foods available in the way of fruits and vegetables. Yes. And, you know, I don't think it's really a small portion. It's an appropriate size portion. And I think one of the realities is that we often overestimate the amount that a child needs to eat. There's a really good website actually called the Infant Toddler Forum, and it shows exactly how much food we should give to children. And it's about, a portion size is about the size of what they can hold in their hand. And if you think about the size of a two-year-old's hand, it's really small. So you can't get many peas or tomatoes or whatever it is in their hand, but we put on our adult portions onto our children. And so that's sort of double-edged sword in that it's good in terms of vegetables. So we think, oh, they've hardly eaten any vegetables, but really and truly they have actually eaten a reasonable amount of vegetables. The danger is in the dessert. So desserts and foods that are really easy to eat, we say, oh, here you go, here's a portion of ice cream. And really and truly, we're giving them three portions of ice cream because we know that they'll eat it, we know it's delicious, and we know that they like it. But really and truly for them, a portion size is much smaller than we think it is. Got it. I love it when you go to ice cream. I don't know if they do this over also in Europe, but when they have ice cream shops here and you can request a, a kid's size portion, which in all honesty is probably a reasonable adult size portion, but at least it's not astronomical. And so, you know, getting that, you know, kid size portion is at least closer to that hand size that you have indicated. But like I said, that's usually what I'll request if I'm going to have ice cream also, because the other portions are enough for probably an entire family that's meant for one adult when you're buying it at a shop. But that's a good perspective in terms of kind of how out of the perspective of how much a child actually needs. And it's this is the kind of stuff they don't teach you about as a parent, that you need to actually do some research and some study and what's so helpful having you on the podcast to kind of help parents who say, gosh, my kid's eating so little at dinner, I'm concerned. You think, well, how old is your child? Two, and how much are they eating throughout the day? And let's say it is helpful. Let's say they haven't filled up on biscuits or cookies at you know in the afternoon. Still, they may not need a lot of food at dinner time to you know have enough calories for the day. And just kind of that fear of oh my gosh, my child's gonna go to bed hungry, or you know gonna wake up in the middle of the night. I need to give them more food, and then loading up on just maybe calories that are not necessarily necessary in the breads, the pastas, or the desserts avoiding that pitfall and just kind of keeping that balanced perspective of how much they actually need to be healthy. It's really helpful. Yeah. You know, I totally hear what you're saying. And people do worry about how much they feed their children. And the reality is, if your child is growing, they are getting enough calories because if they're growing, you know, appropriately, because clearly, if they aren't getting enough calories, they can't do the growing. So by definition, if you go to your pediatric doctor and they're doing the checks and they're saying, yep, they're growing perfectly fine, then they're getting enough calories because otherwise they wouldn't do the growing. Got it. I often tell parents I work with that your child is not going to starve themselves. And like you said, it's also helpful to know that there's a spectrum that, you know, the, the client I worked with, we did talk about going to the pediatrician and finding some help because, you know, if it's under 10 foods, there's maybe more going on there and they might need more support than just listening to a podcast, reading some books, some blogs, and finding some information about how to kind of increase the healthy eating in their family. If it's that limited, there may be something else going on, more support is needed. So it's helpful to kind of know where you may be with your child, if this is something that you're really relating to, and when to go get the extra help, and when you can just try some of these ideas and tips and see if it can kind of help your family. Thinking about kind of like the long range, our, you know, our, our goal here, we're raising children, we're helping them grow up into healthy adults and then they go off into the 
into the world. I, in my home, I've got two teenagers and they're home right now because school is happening remote. And so they're home and I'm kind of observing during the day. I am preparing some food, but I'm also working and running errands and I'm not used to having them home all day long. And so they're helping themselves to their own food a lot. And I'm kind of noticing some patterns and we've been talking about it a bit more in terms of the food that they're going to. They're real carb focused, they're real sugar focused and kind of talking about what are some other things that can go into your lunch, your breakfast, things that I may be not able to help with because they're not usually home. Usually they're off at school eating a school lunch or we've packed a lunch or they've packed a lunch for themselves usually being that they're teenagers. So what are some other ways we can help our children grow up into healthy adults when we kind of start taking some steps back and encouraging and empowering them to take some more agency in their own health, not only eating, but also kind of the broader spectrum of what we think about in terms of health. Yeah, and I think it's fabulous. You know, I haven't quite reached teenage years yet. My oldest will be a teenager next year. But I think teenage years are difficult in that you have to get that balance right between allowing them to make their own decisions, you know, giving them that freedom and, you know, watching them spread their wings a little bit rather than with younger children who you can be a little bit more, you know, guiding with. So I think really the way I teach healthy living, and I think healthy living is so easy, and I think people don't realize how easy it is. And I think part of this is because it just goes back to those habits. If you've got habits which are, you know, sort of entrenched and are helping you, you just do them without thinking. Whereas if you've got habits that aren't helping you, so let's call them good and bad habits because that's what people essentially say, then those bad habits are what you do without thinking about it. So it kind of makes us feel like we've got a big responsibility to make sure our children have these good habits. But the the four areas to think about are nutrition, so what we eat, exercise, sleep. Sleep is a really important one. And also mindset and our emotions and how we think about things, which is what I kind of say sews them all together. It's the foundation of all of those other habits. So I think if we look at that bigger picture and think, okay, well, you know, we're going to be feeding them healthy food and they will just build up those habits of healthy foods, you know, lots of fruit and vegetables and things like whole grains. By whole grains, I mean spelt rather than flour. So whole oats rather than rolled oats, those kind of things. And another thing I would say are legumes and lentils are another really healthy source of essentially carbohydrates. They have put carbohydrates and proteins in them. But they're a good replacement for things like bread and flour that we kind of want to move away from. Another big thing to think about in nutrition is portion sizes that we've mentioned before and internal limits as well. We want our children to have those internal limits so that when they're those mothers that I talked about, you know, at their British tea afternoon, instead of taking all of the biscuits, they take one biscuit or one cookie. So we've talked quite a lot about nutrition and I think exercise is another really important thing and as a family what we can do is do activities together and make them fun and they don't have to be complicated so we um, have just moved to close to the sea and we go for a walk every Saturday and Sunday and it doesn't have to be big but we'll just go okay we've just been unpacking we've just literally moved and so you know we're still at the stage where we're arranging things and at the weekend we get a chance to sort of arrange this cupboard and unpack a little bit and make sure everything is arranged and then we'll say after lunch, okay, and now we just have to go for a walk. It doesn't have to be a long walk. It might be just, you know, pop down to the sea and the children can kick a ball around. Or it might be this weekend, we went a little bit further. So we did two or three kilometers just walking along the coast or riding a bicycle, but it doesn't have to be expensive. And it doesn't have to be 
a big deal, but the more you do it, the more you do these things, the more of a habit it will become for your children. And I think it's just about having fun and keep doing it. And it just becomes their normal. They'll eat healthily, they'll exercise. And if you set bedtime routines when they're little, that, that will be normal for them. Obviously, they'll go off and, you know, party with their friends a little bit. But that's fine as long as they come back to those routines of this is what I normally do. This is my default setting. I think that really makes a lot of sense. Setting up those structures, those routines when they're young and then just have it be part of how you do things as a family and it will carry on and they'll be used to these things as good habits, like you said, that can sustain them and they can continue to kind of go back to as they kind of spread their wings and go off on their own as well. I think um, we have a little bit of time. I want to just real quick ask you about a personal new kind of challenge in the nutrition world in my family. My third born daughter, she's one of my real high sensitive children who was very picky in her kind of toddler preschool years and then kind of emerged at around seven as is kind of being a lot more willing to try foods and she started liking things that she used to reject and including her favorite food was steak. And then about maybe four or five months ago, she just came to me one night and she just said, I don't want to eat meat anymore. She has a real heart for animals and she just absolutely fell in love visiting a chicken farm this summer and started kind of putting things together and recognizing where the meat came from. And she didn't feel comfortable anymore eating animal protein. And so, or at least uh, not meat, she's still willing to eat dairy and eggs, but you know, I didn't take her very seriously for the first several weeks. I kind of said, okay, that's fine. You, you don't like kind of that, that same mentality. I'll, I'll put food out there and you could choose whether to eat it or not. But after a few weeks of this, I realized, well, gosh, I've got to really rethink things because she was holding strong. She's very stubborn. And when she sets her mind to something, that's what happens. And at this point, I felt like she was not eating a lot of good nutrition because I hadn't really thought about reworking the meals to really accompany her new way of eating into the way the family was eating. I kind of have always embraced, particularly dinner time with you have a protein that's typically a meat, and then there's some vegetables and then some type of a starch. And since she's not super adventurous when it comes to vegetables, she kind of would just eat pasta or just eat rice. And after two weeks of this, I saw it impacting her mood, her energy, and I thought, we really need to think about this. And I kind of dove in. I called a pediatrician and talked it through with him and then moved forward. And we're you know, now several months into adapting life and also rethinking the whole family's relationship to food that includes meat. And I'm just curious from your perspective with your background in nutrition, your thoughts about the vegetarian diet, in particular, a young child's vegetarian diet. Well, I have to say, I think it's fabulous. <laughs> Congratulations to her. I think it's amazing that she not only is interested in what she's eating at such a young age from a health point of view, but also from, you know, being aware of the impact it has on animals and also from an environmental, you know, thinking about climate change, it also has a big impact there. So I think it's a really good thing. And I think it's a really interesting question. If we look at the best diet for ourselves for living a long and healthy life, the diet with the most sort of research behind it is called the Mediterranean style diet, which is essentially lots of fruit and vegetables, lots of healthy things like nuts and seeds and whole grains, lentils, legumes, 
olive oil, extra virgin olive oil plays quite a big role in that with little bits of protein. And there is a lot of evidence to show that basically plant-based is the way forward. And what plant-based means is small amounts of meat. You can have small amounts of meat, but you definitely don't need to have small amounts of meat. And I think this brings up the question of protein. And a lot of people really overestimate the amount of protein that you need. And there's more evidence now coming out that animal protein is actually not great for us. It's harmful to us. And I mean, you know, it's slightly controversial because there are people who will say, that's not true. I think animal protein is fine. But if you read everything, there's, you know, a bit on both sides. And I think that really and truly plant-based is coming out on top and animal protein is being seen as it's not great for us in the long term. If we all want to live to be 100 and live, you know, really long and healthful lives, then not eating much meat is going to help us get there. That was my first question to her pediatrician was protein. How do I get enough protein into her? <laughs> exactly played right into my concerns. Yeah, well, there are lots and lots of plant proteins that you can have. And we talk about proteins in different ways. So there's this thing called a complete protein. Proteins are made up of amino acids. So the bits, the amino acids sort of like Lego bricks that create a protein. And there are some amino acids that our body can make, and there are others that our bodies can't make. And we call those essential amino acids because we have to get them from our food source. And if a food has all of the amino acids that we can't get, we call them a complete protein. And so typically a meat is a complete protein. And plant proteins are often not complete proteins. And they used to tell us, oh, if you're going to have plant proteins, you have to mix them properly to make a complete protein. So for example, rice and beans, which are not beans, they're sort of peas, you know, like pinto beans or something like that, like a legume that everybody eats in Central and South America. That typical dish, rice and peas, they call it, is a complete protein because rice has some protein and the peas or beans have some protein and together they make a complete protein. But now they say, actually, you don't have to eat them at exactly the same time. You can eat some rice in the morning and the beans in the afternoon and you'll be fine or on a different day. But the important thing is that you get all of those. So to cut a very long story short, essentially, there are lots and lots of plant-based proteins that you can have. And lentils and legumes are one of the best ones that you can pick. So my children love garbanzo beans. Sorry, I paused there because we call them chickpeas. <laughs> and you can they're so easy. I think they're really good from a health point of view. I think actually everybody should be eating lentils and legumes. You can buy them. Well, I buy them in glass jars, but you can buy them in tins. But you can also just cook them yourself. So I will most nights soak a packet or some beans. And then the next day I put them on in the slow cooker and I use them. And they're a really good replacement for your starch. So going back to your normal meal, which is a meal that a lot of people have, and they say, you know, a bit of protein, some fruit and vegetables and some starch. But the reality is, is that all vegetables are made from carbohydrates. Starch is just another carbohydrate. There is no reason we need to have that starch. You could just have vegetables as long as you're getting some protein, but that protein could be the lentils, the legumes, it could be nuts, it could be seeds. So, you know, if you're thinking about how to cook, you can easily cook lots of vegetables. So take an example, stir-fried vegetables, and you could, if your family want to eat meat, you know, you could have some chicken shredded that you could sprinkle over and you could give your daughter a handful of nuts or seeds and she can sprinkle them on. And so you've made the same meal, but you're keeping everybody happy and she's still getting her protein. But, you know, I think it's just finding ways that are fun and get her involved because, you know, she will probably like to experiment 
and that gives her a little bit of feeling in charge and in control. And it's a fabulous thing to explore. You know, there's so many amazing and easy things that you can use just to create easy and healthy food. Well, your idea about kind of the picky eater in terms of kind of deconstructing the salad, the Greek salad, it, it could very much work in this the same way when you're dealing with people who some might, may, may be eating some meat, others may not, giving like, okay, we're all having stir fry tonight, but then, yeah, here's your, you know, here's your handful of nuts, or here is your, you know, handful of chicken or whatever you might add to that to finish the meal, or maybe maybe you don't even eat that maybe just like the vegetables and the rice are fine <laughs> so i love i love the idea of kind of rethinking things and not feeling like everybody has to have their own meal which as we know can be its own pitfall but at the same time thinking about how can we just kind of deconstruct and allow people to kind of put together their preferences for the same meal but kind of made their way and that could be really helpful and not become so daunting from a parent who's preparing the, the meal yes absolutely i'm definitely don't think anyone should ever be creating more than one meal. If you're making a healthy meal, and you know, I work with people who want to lose weight, and I think, but your healthy meal is healthy for your children as well, and a good way of introducing healthy eating at an early stage, you know. So the only reason really to make separate meals is because it's easier to get them to eat. But really and truly, Eating is about nourishing our bodies and somewhere along the line, and I guess this is another complicated situation, but we've got this idea into our head and my children definitely have this idea is that we eat only foods that we think are the most wonderful foods in the world because we really, really enjoy eating them. And I understand that there are some foods that you know, have a bit of a disgust reaction. So one of my children doesn't like bananas. I don't quite understand why. He used to eat them when he was really young, but now he can smell them. And that's something that's really on the I don't like this list. But there's a lot of foods that turn into the, that fall into that, okay, this isn't wonderful, but it's not absolutely disgusting, but I don't want to eat it because I only want to eat that favorite delicious food. And I think at that stage, you're missing the point of well, why do we eat? We eat to nourish our bodies. The purpose of eating is so that we have the nutrients so that our bodies can run as they're supposed to run not that we eat for the pleasure of eating. And obviously you can get some pleasure with eating, and but you have to just get that limit straight so that you're not overcompensating and just looking to food for enjoyment. Mm -hmm. And I think this brings up another topic as well, which is about emotional eating and something we didn't discuss earlier when we were talking about children. And I think one of the things we really want to avoid with children is that connection of emotions and eating that we see with lots of people and the way we can do that with as parents is to not connect the two so for example don't reward children with eating so you know you've been really good let's go and have an ice cream or you've been really bad so you're not going to have dessert and that's really connecting emotions and eating and you know when I had my first child it's so easy to do I realized when he was very young that he hated putting his car seat on. But if I just happened to give him a biscuit, a cookie, at the time that it was car seat time, then suddenly he would be so busy concentrating on his biscuit that it was easy for me to put the car seat on. But what I realized was that what I was doing was saying, you're behaving badly, here you go, have a cookie. And now suddenly I can put your car seat on and it's building that connection. And it seems like a a small thing, but if you repeat that and repeat that, you're going to build that connection, which you really don't want to build. That really makes a lot of sense. And I really like your perspective there about eating together 
it doesn't have to all be about creating pleasure necessarily, that it is food is fuel. And like you said, there may be some things that you like more than others that bring some pleasure, but you know, the pressure around every meal has to be this incredible feeling of, you know, gourmet cuisine and all the things we love, but maybe love too much and have too much of that is really about fueling your body. And your question that, you know, earlier about like, here is a plate of steamed cabbage and then here's a plate of cake. Yes, I'd, I'd kind of like ingest, like I'd grab the cake, but the reality is that's just going for the pleasure point and like, oh, that's sweet. That's going to taste so good. But then you think, how would I feel an hour after consuming both of those? And I don't mean even like the emotional part of, oh, guilty, I ate something more just physically. I would feel a lot better after I ate the steamed cabbage than I would after eating the cake because the cake doesn't provide the nutrition and the fuel that the vegetables would. And that's a really interesting way to kind of rethink the way we think about eating and food. And that's really helpful. Thank you for that. My pleasure. No, well, it's very interesting. And I think one of the things that happens now is people snack so frequently that they get used to having glucose. So what should really happen is you should eat some food and then your body stores all that glucose. And then after a period of time, that glucose runs out and you stop eating and your body basically says, oh, I need some glucose. And then it starts to use those stores up. So we've got stores all over our body. And obviously the most well-known store is fat, but there are stores before we get to fat. So really what should happen is when we feel hungry, we go, okay, let's use some of that energy up. And then obviously we eat a little bit later. But hunger is one of these really interesting things because people say, well, I don't want to be hungry. We're almost scared of being hungry. What happens when you're hungry? And the answer is, well, absolutely nothing, really. Your body goes, okay, I'm going to go and find some glucose. And your body can go and find glucose. However, a lot of people have trained themselves to not do that. And so then they eat and then they eat some more, and then they eat some more, and they're just constantly in this storage mode, and they never give their body a time to go, okay, I'm going to go and use some of that energy. And I, you know, I think that's another thing that we want to teach our children is it's okay to be hungry. Okay, I'm not asking you to starve for days and days, although intermittent fasting is another topic, but I wouldn't recommend it for children. But you know, this idea that hunger equals bad, whereas really and truly, hunger is a signal that over a period of time, obviously drives us to make sure that, you know, without hunger, we would never eat and therefore we wouldn't ever fuel. We would just die because we wouldn't have that drive to go and get food. But actually it's not an immediate, it's not like oxygen. It's not like, oh my goodness, I'm hungry. I'm going to collapse in a heap, which a lot of people think that's not true. Hunger is one of those, okay, I'm going to push you to go and get food, but you can wait a little bit. It's fine. It's just saying, yeah, now you need to go and look for some more food inside yourself. You don't have to do it from eating something. That makes a lot of sense. And also how often do we hear from our children, you know, I'm bored, I'm hungry. <laughs> are you really yeah, hungry? Exactly. <laughs> are, you, are you just kind of connecting? And that kind of leads back to your topic of the emotional eating. I'm uncomfortable feeling bored and not knowing what to do. Therefore, I must be hungry, making that connection, which can be, oh gosh, a vicious cycle. Yeah, and my children say, I'm only hungry for chocolate. And I say, there is no such thing as only hungry for chocolate. If you're genuinely hungry, then here, have a carrot or have an apple. And if you're actually hungry, or if they are actually hungry, they will eat it. And if they're like, oh, you know, I don't really feel like a carrot, can I have a cookie? Well, the answer is, you're not hungry then, you're bored, aren't you? <laughs> yes. Or you're just craving that sugar as opposed yeah. to not truly being hungry. And when you truly are hungry, that's usually when you're willing to try things maybe that otherwise you would put off because you're not truly hungry. So another great opportunity to say, here, let's 
try this spinach salad and <laughs> see, see. Yeah, I think actually you have to be careful. I think with picky children, you have to be a little bit careful about when you introduce new foods because you have to be careful that when they are actually genuinely hungry, what they're expecting is something, you know, if it's a meal time and they're hungry and they sit down, what they really expect is a nice plate of something to fill them up. And then they're presented with something which seems very alien and scary. It can really trigger them to get upset because they've got this expectation which has then been broken. So, you know, it might be that they would try that food, but I would suggest do it in a more relaxed time when they aren't starving hungry, because then you've got a starving, hungry, irritable child, and you've given them <laughs> this strange food. So, you know, I think it's just know your child, really, in that know case. Know child in the timing, not starving. Yeah, with your adventurous eaters, that might very well work. But with your picky eaters, they're going to be scared and anxious about that. But your picky eaters, yeah, when they're hungry, it might be a good time to do that. Good to know. Well, I, mean, I feel like we could go on talking on this topic forever. This is such interesting content. How can people learn more about you, your podcast, and your work? How can they find you on social media or your website? Well, thank you very much for asking. My website is drorlina.com and I'm very excitingly doing lots of work on it. So I've just recently had a new logo, which isn't actually on the site yet, but I'm super excited about showing it probably next year. And my podcast is Fit and Fabulous at 40 and Beyond, which is available on, you know, all the, on iTunes and all the podcast apps. And my social media, so my Instagram is Dr. Alina and my Facebook, oh my goodness, I have to confess, I'm not so great on Facebook. <laughs> I do have a page. I think it's Fit and Fabulous. I'm constantly changing it, but I will change it to Dr. Alina. But I think right now it's Fit and Fabulous. And I think it's Fit and Fabulous Weight Loss, but I will have to give you the link. No worries. I'll go ahead and include all of those in our show notes so that my listeners can come find you and follow your podcast and see all the great work you're doing. So I always love to round out my episodes by asking my podcast guests, what do you and your family like to do to connect to one another? That is a really good question. Well, we do have lots of things, you know, we eat together and we tidy the house together. But I think wow. what my kids, <laughs> it doesn't happen every week, but we're working on this routine. But I think what my kids actually really like is a little bit of rough and tumble. I have three boys and one girl. And yeah, they like to get physical with each other, particularly the, the children. I don't always join in, but they do really like it when adults join in. And so sometimes we do join in. Sometimes it might be a bit more less rough and tumbly and more sort of playing games. But yeah, I would say rough and tumble is their number one thing that they totally love. Oh, that's great. Yeah, my kids, they enjoy that too. And it's hard when it's cold, rainy, and they just want to be rough and tumble all over the furniture and jumping off our fairly small home off all the furniture. <laughs> but they love it. And it's a great way to get that energy out. Well, thank you so much, Arlena, for joining us today on the podcast. I've learned a tremendous amount and I know my listeners have as well. And again, I'll have all the links so that you can follow and listen to Dr. Orlina and all her wonderful advice on her podcast and beyond. Thanks so much again. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you so much for tuning in this week to the 3D Parent Podcast. I hope it has provided you with the inspiration you need for building stronger relationships with your children and trusting your instincts when it comes to parenting. If you have a parenting question you'd like answered on the podcast, or if you'd like one-on-one -on -one parent coaching, head over to the3dparent.com and click the contact tab to send me your question. If today's discussion empowered your parenting, please be sure to subscribe to the show, leave a rating and a review. Also, I'd love to connect with you on social media. 
So take a screenshot, share it on your Instagram stories, and tag me at The3DParent. I look forward to meeting you here again next week on The3D Parent Podcast.